This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today I have David Gartenstein-Ross back on the Loopcast. He's been a long-time guest on the show and also listeners. So it's really nice to have you back on the Loopcast, David. Thank you so much, Chelsea. I love the Loopcast. It's been with us for you know, almost a dozen years now, approximately. It's been, you know, you've gotten some longevity to this podcast and it's an honor to have been with you all from day one. Yeah, I know. I cannot believe how much time has gone by. My co-producer, Sinan, and I keep on thinking we've been doing this for a handful of years, but then we look back and we're like, no, it's a lot longer than that. So yeah, time flies, as they say. (laughs) Well, today we're going to be talking about crisis architecture, and I will give a little intro to David just in case you don't know who he is, but David is a counterterrorism scholar analyst, and the author of a number of books, including Bin Laden's Legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror, and Enemies Near and Far, a book about jihadist organizations' learning processes that will be published this year by Columbia University Press. So congratulations on the forthcoming book. Thank you. I'm excited about it. He's also the chief chief executive officer of Valens Global, which is a private firm that is dedicated to addressing unique 21st century challenges, including providing information, analysis, and strategies on critical threat issues. So he definitely has more qualifications than anyone would ever need to discuss this topic among others. So it's great to have you back on. Why don't we talk about where this idea of crisis architecture came from, where it developed in your mind, and the background of why we need to think about this. Yeah, crisis architecture came from me looking at this environment where we were experiencing uh, much more mass shooting attacks than we have before and seeing a significant similarity between mass shootings, which have become prevalent over the course of the past decade, and the terrorist attacks that I spend a lot of time studying. What jumped out to me was in both cases, in the case of mass shooting or a terrorist attack, the attacks end quickly. And often there are missed opportunities to save lives. I was concentrating really on the built environment, on architecture, and the way that the architecture of a lot of buildings where indoor shootings occur is just not appropriate for the kind of threat, for the kind of incident that was faced. So about five years ago, I started developing this concept of crisis architecture, which in addition to trying to make the built environment safer, was trying to do something else, which to me was exactly where a lot of the intellectual problem existed. And that is, how do you keep architecture beautiful? How do you maintain its form and its function while also preparing for those security incidents. Because anybody who's seen the securitization of architecture 
knows how horrible it could look. And in crisis architecture, I wanted to create something that would make the built environment safer while at the same time maintaining the form, the function, and the beauty of architecture as we know it. And I think this is something really important, especially considering the world we live in now and more mass shootings taking place in schools and workplaces and other locations. And as you mentioned, a lot of these events take place in a very quick amount of time if you think about that. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. The, the average time between an attacker entering a structure and the end of the shooting in the five deadliest indoor mass shootings was just nine minutes and 48 seconds. In other words, under 10 minutes from the time the attacker entered and the time that the last bullet was fired. So in those five shootings, 154 people were killed in a 49-minute span. We can see an example of this for in Sandy Hook Elementary School, one of the most horrific mass shootings, in part because of who the victims were. At Sandy Hook, 20 of the 26 victims were ages six to seven. And in that attack, a single shooter killed 26 children and adults in only 10 minutes. In the 2016 terrorist attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, a gunman killed 49 people in just nine minutes. So yes, one characteristic of these attacks is that they end early, thus making a quick response of essence. And those numbers and timeframes are so sobering when you think about it and the lives that have been lost. Why don't we talk a little bit also about when we think of mass shootings here, especially in the United States, a lot of the issues that people tend to focus on after the fact is policy debates that surround mass shootings. While these are important, why should we look beyond this? The main reason is I think policy debates, while important, don't represent the full picture. Generally speaking, if a policy debate will take years to resolve, and as we know, they do, if that's all you're investing in, you miss the opportunity to save lives now. Even if we have a much more robust gun control regime, and you know there are arguments about whether we should have a more robust regime or not, but even if we have one, it isn't clear that this eventual regime will resolve the problems of mass shootings. You might limit certain kinds of guns, but looking at attacks across the world, attackers often find a way to get weapons. And you know, with 3D printing and the ability to fashion 3D guns, we that that creates a further avenue to get around a gun control regime. If you look at um, a fairly recent synagogue attack in in uh, Germany, or rather Austria, the attacker utilized 3D printed guns. Now, they actually misfired. They weren't helpful in that particular attack, but it, it shows that we're in a technological environment where 
completely repressing the means of carrying out the attack won't necessarily always work. And so for that reason, we need to not simply rest our hopes in eventual policy changes, but also look for other solution sets. At its worst, a dynamic that only focuses on eventual policy outcomes can bring about a kind of paralysis where we wait for society to resolve debates about gun control or about root causes of violence before we take action. So in part, my hope is that crisis architecture can represent an alternative to waiting, that we can have concrete means to save lives now. So going to the concept of crisis architecture, I think looking at what we have already is really important. So what can we learn from bad architecture that we have right now to make it better? The first thing is I wouldn't necessarily call it bad architecture. Uh, A lot of the architecture, which is not appropriate for a certain mass shooting attack, is actually good architecturally, just not appropriate for the threat being faced. Mass shootings have risen dramatically over the past two decades. So it's not clear to me that not being attuned to the challenge when a building was created in the you know, 1980s or 1970s or before that makes the architecture bad. But when it is contextually inappropriate to the challenge at hand, the architecture can help the killer and stand in the way of those who were trying to escape. The Sandy Hook attack, which I mentioned before, is an example. In that attack, the teachers couldn't even lock the doors of the rooms from the inside. Those doors only locked from the outside, so somebody would have to have walked down the hall and locked the doors from the hallway one by one. Obviously, the shooter at Sandy Hook moves far too quickly for that. There are other areas where architecture can help the killer and stand in the way of those who are trying to escape. This includes lack of cover and concealment, having too limited a number of exits, having defense elements that aren't linked to a strategic outcome. In other words, having some defensive barriers and the like, but no real conception of getting people to a terminal outcome that is you know, fight, flight, or shelter in place. Looking across a range of attacks, I saw this architectural inappropriateness arise too many times. And that also is one of the things that helped to spur me to think more deeply about the concept that eventually I would come to call crisis architecture. So let's talk about this concept. What is crisis architecture? And I will just say reading some of the previous work you've done on this, which we'll definitely post in links with the show, it really makes you rethink the buildings you spend a lot of time in their current design and and architecture versus what crisis architecture is suggesting. Well, thank you for that. What crisis architecture is designed to do is to bring to bear tactical, psychological, and also technological measures to address the threat of mass shootings and other attacks through the built environment. Importantly, as I mentioned earlier, 
it's also designed to be an alternative to the jarring securitized architecture that we often think of in this sphere. So if you envision a school, it's surrounded entirely by barbed wire. Every single entrance has a metal detector. At some point, it stops looking like a school. It begins to look like a fortress or a prison. It Not only is it not an attractive place to send your kids, but it's an architecture that at all times emphasizes the physical threat. That has a psychological impact. So crisis architecture is meant to preserve the form, the function, and the beauty that we expect of our buildings and our public spaces, while also, if tragedy strikes, working to protect lives. What can we learn from crisis architecture that is different or even similar to other criminology, crime preventions through environmental design, or external area defense designs that we've seen to mitigate attacks and violence on properties? That's a great question, Chelsea. And what you're putting your finger on is this rich history of how architecture has been utilized over time to address pressing social challenges. My co-author, Tad Leonard, and I discussed this at some length in our original War on the Rocks article that introduced the idea of crisis architecture. The design of public structures influencing social challenges goes all the way to before even the Middle Ages. European architectural landmarks reflect the centuries-old sway that societal troubles have had on the form and function of communal space. In the pre-medieval era, the threat of raiding parties led to the development of primitive hill forts. When the Middle Ages arrived, landed barons who routinely confronted violent conditions built castles to protect themselves and to protect their polity. Then as politics became less physically turbulent, physical structures, the built environment shifted as well as civil governments created stately administrative buildings epitomizing function and grandeur. So if we turn to modern times and to the US context, contemporary thinking about designing the built environment to mitigate the effects of social challenges has its roots in concepts that were developed in the 1960s and 1970s. In 1961, Jane Jacobs penned a famous treatise called The Death and Life of American Cities that played a pivotal role in shaping public thinking about how the design of cities can influence social outcomes. And her work to this day influences the way that both New York City and Toronto look. Of further significance and more directly relevant to crisis architecture is the American architect and city planner, Oscar Newman, whose intellectual contribution in this area was made primarily in the early 1970s. Newman formulated a concept called defensible space after he conducted a series of studies on urban public housing projects. The core of Newman's theory was that there's a relationship between design features and the prevalence of crime at a housing complex. He argued that underused and poorly maintained public spaces, entrants that aren't visible from the streets, 
numerous exit points that could act as escape routes and poor surveillance all increased the potential for criminal activity. He theorized that a public housing unit that eliminated these features would have lower rates of criminality. So if you fast forward to the 1990s, Newman's work by then had not only become influential, but it received an endorsement from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which used many defensible space concepts in its policy development and its research division. Newman's ideas were also integrated into what is the most widely adopted modern theory about the intersection of architectural design and security, which you mentioned, crime prevention through environmental design, which is known through its acronym as as SEPTED. So academics and practitioners have defined three key strategies to facilitate implementation of SIPTED into the built environment. These are natural surveillance, natural access control, and territorial reinforcement. I won't address them in any detail here, but instead I want to go look at the 9-11 attacks and their aftermath and how that led to another concept that you mentioned, external area defense. Right after the 9-11 attacks, a number of cities, including Washington, New York, and Los Angeles, implemented ad hoc defensive measures around key infrastructure, around buildings, around landmarks. These ad hoc measures included the installation of concrete barriers. Now, the problem with these ad hoc measures is that they frequently eclipsed the form and function of the architecture that they were installed to protect. They unnecessarily impeded vehicular and pedestrian movement. They detracted from the vitality of public space They looked terrible, and they also were generally ineffective because concrete barriers that aren't secured into pavement can't stop most moving vehicles. Now, governments, architects, urban planners all recognize these flaws, and so they began developing design-based paradigms to prevent and mitigate the effects of attacks against high-rise buildings, of attacks using vehicles, and of street-side bombings. The focus of these paradigms can broadly be termed external area defense. They're focused on a whole city or on a city block. They're primarily designed to prevent an attack that occurs exterior to a building. There are some very good examples of external area defense. One of my favorite ones being the Arsenal Football Club's Emirates Stadium, which was built in North London back in 2006. But the problem with external area defense is that it's name. It won't protect once an attacker gets inside. And we all know that attackers have gotten inside the buildings they want to strike on too many occasions. That's where crisis architecture enters the picture. And I think this history should explain how it differs from previous architectural paradigms designed to address social challenges. Crisis architecture focuses on the interior of the building, and of increasing survivability through how a building is constructed and conceptualized on the inside. Why don't we talk about some of the principles that define crisis architecture and why they're important and why we need to hopefully start implementing them in designs? Absolutely. There are eight principles and they're designed to work together to increase survivability. So implementation of any one of these eight would I think be beneficial, but you get maximum value if you're able to 
incorporate all eight principles into the built environment. The first one is enabling creation of distance. Structures should allow people in the building to rapidly move from one area to another, which is critical in the initial moments of an, of an active aggressor incident. There should be numerous connecting hallways between parts of a building and multiple staircases between floors. All of this facilitates short transit times. One example of this principle is the Pentagon. It's the world's largest office building, but the average time to walk between any two places in the Pentagon is only seven minutes because of numerous internal corridors and stairwells. The second principle is allowing a safe exit from numerous points in the building. This could be accomplished by adding more standard exits, but also by integrating non-standard exit points. Examples of non-standard exit points include pop-out windows, emergency rope ladders from upper story windows, and subterranean exits. The third principle is integrating angles to limit a shooter's line of sight. An attacker with a firearm will normally shoot only what he can see. Angles should be integrated to limit the line of sight and decrease the number of targets that a shooter has available at any given time. The shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, on February 14th, 2018, provides a tragic example of the need for angles. Building 12, where that attack occurred, had a typical design for a school with long straight hallways and classrooms on both sides. The shooter entered the first floor. He was able to see four students in the hall. He shot all of them and killed three, then moved down the hall. One sad fact about that attack is that the shooter never entered a single classroom. He engaged all the occupants from the doorways without ever opening the doors because he didn't need to enter any classrooms. He could see and engage every single victim either in the hallway or from the classroom doors precisely because of lack of angles. The fourth principle is providing adequate cover and concealment. Cover can stop bullets while concealment only prevents an individual from being seen. Areas of wall constructed of bullet-resistant materials, hardened artistic or structural features, and ballistic doors and windows are examples of potential interior cover. For concealment, non-bullet-resistant non structural elements like standard walls or doors and standard artistic features like large plants or furnishings can provide good concealment. Another possible concealment technique, which is now in use in some schools, is obscuration through a medium like, for example, smoke. A fifth principle is enabling rapid hardening of a facility. A design that allows rapid hardening can include features such as push-button deadbolts, window coverings that drop when an alarm is triggered, and internal ballistic doors that can be electronically closed. The sixth principle is implementing human-centered design concepts. Often victims of an attack are untrained, they're often unprepared, and these incidents are always chaotic and confusing with people reacting instinctively. Human-centered design can help by leveraging people's natural ability to intuitively recognize patterns and indicators in their environment. Buildings should be designed so that an individual's movement to cover and exits are natural and obvious in a moment when there's excessive adrenaline and minimum 
rational thought. The seventh principle is that training and design need to be mutually supporting. For example, if an organization's active shooter protocol is to shelter in place, the spaces where they're supposed to do so should be built to withstand attempted entry or attack. Similarly, if evacuation is the preferred protocol, there needs to be cover and concealment available along routes to the multiple exits that that building has. And our final point, our eighth point, is to integrate systems to increase the situational awareness of first responders. This is something also illustrated by the Parkland shooting. In that shooting, a police officer was dispatched to monitor Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's CCTV camera and to pass information to officers who were preparing to enter. Due to privacy concerns, the police were not authorized live, real-time, remote, or independent access to the system, so they couldn't see the footage until they were on the scene. Not only that, but they didn't know that the footage that they were seeing in the security office was on a delay. The shooter left the scene while officers were still viewing what they believed to be live footage of the shooter inside the building. And this misinformation hindered the law enforcement, victim rescue, and also medical response to that incident. Those last words are heart-wrenching is probably the best way to say it. And I mean, you mentioned when it comes to CCTV cameras and so forth, there is a privacy issue. So how do we mitigate that so that, as you said, first responders can really interact with those potentially on the ground in a better, timely, more efficient fashion? I think there's a number of options for doing so. A lot of that would get negotiated out bilaterally, but one option would be to allow a real-time feed to be accessed remotely when there's a security incident. So one of the principles that I talked about, the fifth principle was rapid hardening of a facility. And there are different ways to harden a facility. It can be controlled individually, like by a teacher who could push a button in her classroom. They could also be controlled centrally, for example, by a school administrator or a security official who trips the alarm to enable that rapid hardening. One feature of the rapid hardening could be that it then also trips a real-time feed that first responders can access remotely. A second thing that could be done is to define what zones of privacy are within a school so you don't have you know, the panopticon watching, but can have some integration of first responders. It's not, there aren't, I think, easy universal answers, but based on the answer that I just gave with, you know, A, a negotiation option where there's certain zones of privacy versus zones where you believe that your privacy is abridged, which exists, for example, already in airports, or secondly, you know, remote viewing that can come into play only when an alarm is tripped. Those provide some options where facilities can negotiate this out with first responders based on their own values and their own conception of how much privacy is important to the people who are a part of that building. Another one of the principles that you were talking about dealing with lines of sight and so forth, and when you think of a lot of office buildings, schools, and other buildings where people are converging all the time and spending time there, and where we also unfortunately see a lot of these mass shootings taking place, 
I mean, you really do envision the long hallways with, like you said, the either the classrooms or the offices off the doors. And I mean, you can stand all the way across the building and see everything on the, at the end of the building, the other side. And you talked about incorporating angles and so forth. So I want to talk about that because I guess some people might be listening to this saying, well, we already have all of these buildings that are established. How can we actually implement some of these suggestions, if not all of them, in current structures? And if it's worth trying, or is this something we really should think of when designing new buildings? No, I, I think that one can retrofit buildings. It's obviously harder and more expensive and you might not be able to incorporate all eight principles when it's a retrofit. But there's an architectural journal that actually reached out to uh, me and my co-author, Tad Lannert, after we developed the idea of crisis architecture and asked us to write an article about what retrofitting would entail. Oh, nice. Bottom line is it can be done, but what, what do you, the angles part is one that intuitively seems most difficult because as you said, these hallways are already made. But I think that's an area where if you look at the principle that I mentioned about adequate cover and concealment, you can effectively create angles through adding decoration to hallways. So concealment, such as, you know, I mentioned large plants before, there are also half walls, there's also furnishings. You can use concealment in a somewhat unobstructed, uh, unobtrusive way in hallways to provide some ability to get out of sight in the case of a security incident. It's obviously easier if you do it at the outset, but I think with a little bit of creativity, you can at least create a likeness of some of these principles, even if it has to be done during a retrofit, as opposed to in the initial design. I think another point that you mentioned earlier on in the talk, which is really important to consider when implementing crisis architecture, is the psychological effect. Because as you said, it's creating architecture that will protect people, God forbid, a situation like this arises, but it also is not psychologically impacting those in the building that spend time there thinking that they're in a fortified fortress, really. Yeah, absolutely. We emphasize the psychological dimension a lot, a few times in the, the articles that we've put together, because that's been studied and the psychological impact of a built environment that emphasizes security threats is real. But beyond that, I'm just, I'm a fan of architecture. I like beautifully made buildings. And in, you know, an age of armed politics and mass attacks, I want us to continue to have beautiful architecture that's welcoming and that serves the function that it's designed to serve for the community, even while making us safer against these kinds of threats. Another concept that you were mentioning was having adequate spaces that if you do need to stay in place, shelter in place, as a lot of workforces and schools suggest if, if there is a event, you know, you need to be able to feel like that space is going to be safe. You're not going to be stuck there. And I, I once again, think back to architecture that I spend time in and the concept of doors being able to be locked, 
other exits. What happens when we have other exits that might be a number of floors up? What kind of suggestions does crisis architecture offer of exits that might not be typical convention type exits? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say that the core principle when it comes to exits or really anything in crisis architecture is to be able to think creatively about what feature you might add on. When it comes to non-standard exits, there are a a number of non-standard exits which you can use. I mentioned earlier pop-out windows and emergency rope ladders. Emergency rope ladders, I I should say, in past attacks that we've seen, basically you'll have potential victims, you know, fashion their own means of escape, often, you know, ad hoc and on the spot. One example is the horrifying urban warfare attacks that occurred in Mumbai, India, about a dozen years ago. In those attacks, quite famously, in one of the hotels that was attacked, the people in the hotel, as they were trying to evade attackers, used blankets to create, basically to make makeshift ropes for themselves so they could get down a couple of floors and get to safety. So one should consider, you know, the range of place spaces that are available to you to go for, for you to go to and incorporate protocols to get to one of those exits, be it a standard exit or a non-standard exit. The only complication I would say is that almost any security feature is also a potential cause of insecurity. So there were two there were two major hotels that were attacked in the Mumbai attack. I mentioned the one where people in the hotel lowered blankets to escape. One of the other hotels that was attacked actually had windows that for security reasons wouldn't open. Usually that will make the hotel more secure. It had the uh, impact in that case of providing people no safe exit from the room. Likewise, you know, having more doorways, having more exits from a building, that could allow you to escape, but it also presents more potential entrance points that an attacker can go in through. And I point to that not to make this infinitely complicated, but actually just to emphasize a single point that I'd made, which is the need for some sort of strategic framework for a building. That is, if things go wrong, what is the plan? And as long as you're thinking strategically, I think it allows you to make the right decision when it comes to these complications where security features could also be useful to attackers. One of the problems that I I mentioned before is that sometimes the spaces that we're in there's not strategic thinking to how everything fits together in the event of an attack. What you mentioned is shelter in place. That can be, that's one of three terminal strategies that one can have. You know, shelter in place, get to an exit or fight. Those really are the three things one can do to make an attack more survivable. And so any security feature needs to be wedded to this overarching question of if this goes down, how do you allow the people in this space to survive? And once you answer that strategic question, then you can work backwards 
and much more effectively combine the tactics that you need to increase survivability. I'm trying to think about listeners and some of the questions that might pop into their minds when listening to this talk. And I think the one thing that's always on people's minds, organizations' minds, and so forth, is what types of costs will this factor into us potentially adapting a building or if we're going to be building a new building? Like, what are we talking about? And I think a lot of the time when you think of more area defense systems that you had discussed earlier with the barriers that you see in front of usually federal buildings here in the States and, and buildings of importance or buildings where many people gather, especially when it comes to here in DC, a lot of those are in front of government buildings or different types of area defense are incorporated in the government environment. But for private sectors, and companies and schools, like what can we think when thinking of costs, which of course is monetary, but you know, right now we're talking about the cost of lives, which is really important, like it should be thought of. Yeah, absolutely. The cost is um, a, a great question. I think one of the principles one should look at when it comes to any kinds of costs is that the answer as to how much something will cost always depends, right? You, you, it's always a range. You could spend a lot, you could spend a little, but either way you wanna maximize the value that you get. To me, the real de decision isn't whether to spend on crisis architecture, it's whether to spend on security. Most buildings that are vulnerable to attack and where there's a population that you definitely wanna protect, ha spend something on security. That's true these days of schools. That's true of office buildings. It's true of government buildings. And so if the decision is to spend on security, I think I would encourage people to look to crisis architecture's principles as being a way to make the security spending coherent and to link it to cognizable outcomes that can increase survivability for the people that the building is meant to protect. Within that, once one has made the decision of how much to spend on security, I think you can look at what you can do for that cost. I think that at the low end, if you're, if you're looking to not spend much more than, if you're building a new building and you're not looking to spend much more than it would normally cost, then one of the easy things to do is, for example, incorporate numerous exits, incorporate angles, and suddenly you've, you've taken advantage of two of crisis architecture's principles without necessarily even radically changing the design of the building. So to me, that's how I would frame the decision. As someone who, you know, as you know, I, I run an organization, and so we have to make spending choices all the time across a variety of things, ranging from, you know, getting a new website to spending money on branding and, you know, and things like that. And it's always a range and how to maximize the value that we're getting for our expenditure. Within that paradigm, I always understand that there are things where we can actually get something of value while also spending drastically less than one of our competitors might expend in the same category. And on that point, moving forward, how can we conceptualize implementing crisis architecture 
in our daily lives, really, because all of us do spend a lot of time, of course, pre-COVID at office buildings and different places away from our own homes. And I think just looking at the environment that we live in, and unfortunately, the increase in mass shootings and workplace violence and violence at schools and so forth, I think this is something that as a community, whether it's locally or as a whole, we really need to start thinking about this. Definitely. So the, the ways to implement it, I'll divide this into the perspective of, of the building owner or the, or the person who's responsible for security within the building and then an in, the individual level. For those who own the space, you know, either because they operate um, a business there or because they're in charge of the school or the like, there are two options. Uh, the first one is integrating it into building design when the building is first being stood up. And the second is to retrofit the building to make it comport with crisis architecture principles. Either way, this design element should be coupled with a training and awareness element. To get the most out of crisis architecture principles or any security principles, it's good for people who use that building or that space regularly to be aware that it's there. On an individual level, I would say that it comes down to one principle, which is awareness of your surroundings and an understanding or conception of what you might do if you suddenly find yourself in a crisis situation. So being aware of where the exits are, being aware of cover, being aware of concealment. Uh, a lot of offices and businesses have some security training. The quality of that security training will differ drastically from one building to another. But if it's a space where you're spending a lot of time, gaining that awareness usually doesn't take a great deal of time and it helps you to be prepared if disaster strikes. And we all know that while all of us are unlikely to be caught up in a mass shooting attack, this kind of tragedy is striking far more frequently than any of us should be comfortable with. I completely agree with you on all of those points. As you know from being a guest on the Loopcast before, we like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we haven't had the time to touch on in the talk or have a final thought that you would like to present. So I'm going to hand over the floor to you. Thanks, Chelsea. For my final thought, I'd like to say that I always really appreciate the opportunity to join you on the Loopcast. I appreciate the dedication that the Loopcast has to exploring topics of importance and doing so in an intelligent way, which brings in a multiplicity of perspectives to speak on a lot of issues related to the 21st century security environment and other challenges that we're confronting as a society. <clears throat> the direction that we're moving in as a country right now, unfortunately, is toward greater militancy with this broader trend toward armed politics. Obviously, there are deeper and more systemic issues at play that need to be addressed. But in addition to thinking about the, the big picture 
and what kind of policy changes or cultural or societal changes are important. It's also critical to be able to address some of the immediate manifestations. It's important to think about how do we save lives now? And my hope is that what crisis architecture does is contribute in both immediate ways, but also in other ways that may have a more long lasting effect. I think there's value to having us think through the environment that we're in, to think through our relationship to the built environment and how there are some solution sets that are more easily at our hands. My hope ultimately is that this will be a useful concept that among other things is empowering on a set of issues that can too often feel deflating and too often feel that it makes us powerless. Well, I thank you for your insight on this really important topic. And it's definitely stuff we need to think about as a community and as a society. And also thank you for your kind words about the Loopcast. As always, we appreciate having you on. And hopefully when your new book comes out, we can also talk about that. Most definitely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Chelsea.